Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Nathan Collier with you here today, standing in for Jim. Today, we're revisiting an interview Jim did with Renee Dupree, Chief Legal Officer of Standard Bank. In this interview, Renee takes us through her career. She tells us the story of being the only female associate at her first South African law firm back in the early 90s, and how her career developed as she moved in-house all the way up to her current role. Renee talks about her priorities as a Chief Legal Officer, about unifying the legal department, breaking down silos, and about being a mentor to other women breaking into the field. Lots of great stories in this one. So as Jim would say, in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Renee Dupreez, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jim. I'm also quite excited. Oh, you're more than welcome. Now, Renee, I don't know if you've heard any episodes before, but I usually kick off by saying, Renee, tell the audience a little bit about the, the Renee Dupree's story. How did you get interested in law in the first place? And take us through your career arc to date. I was born in 1967 to two very young parents. Um, my mother was 19 and my father was 22. I have to say, I was born in 65 to two very young parents. My mother was 19, my father was 21. So, oh my so, word. so there you go, there you go. It's a generational thing. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but that has had quite an impact on my life. I, I always felt um, responsible for my parents. Um, you know, my, my, my dad was, was quite a, a, a provider, um, but my mom was was mostly at home. And um, I think as I tell the story, you'll see, you know, in, in the, the things that pivoted me um, usually had to do with somehow me feeling that I have to jump in and do something. Um, so my dad wanted to be a lawyer and that's where the whole idea came to me. Um, yeah. And I was quite a compliant uh, child. Um, I did very well at school, and I think it was more about um, pleasing than, than anything else, but I found that there was no problems when I did well at school. So I did pretty well at school, and I was always trying to impress my dad, and, you know, so his dream became mine. Yeah. Um, and I never actually uh, challenged myself as to whether, you know, it's something that, that I did because of that and, and or it grew on me, but... I've actually had a wonderful career. So, you know, I, I think these things happen as they must. Um, I went to university. I went to an Afrikaans university, which is one of our official languages here. But why I'm telling this as well is I again had to pivot when I left varsity and I'd learned everything in Afrikaans. I joined a very, very English firm, one of the big firms in, in South Africa, Bowman Gilfillan, as an article clerk. Uh, there were 10 of us, um, and I was the only woman. So, wow. and interesting enough, the only person of color uh, was our present CEO, Mr. Shim Shavalala. So we, we always joke that we were the tokens. Um, but um, <laughs> <laughs> And we managed to find each other late in life again wow. and work at the same company, which, wow. which is very nice. 
Yeah. Yes. So uh, I started working at this very English firm. It was a challenge for me because of my background. Afrikaans uh, people are, are, are very respectful. Uh, so I would call everybody Mr. Whoever. Um, yep. You know, I, to this day, if I see some of the guys from Bowman's, I, I will still call them Mr. And presumably it was mo- mostly Mr. back then. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Things have changed, but not at that stage. Um, I decided to to leave private practice um, because of an incident that just made me realize that I'm, I'm never going to get out of the, um, you know, I was an article clerk there and then I stayed on, um, I did property law, then I did litigation, then I went to the commercial department and I was working for one of our big commercial partners and the one day he said at lunch to everyone, he said, you know, Rene is worth 10 clerks. And somebody said, yes, Charles, but Rene is not a clerk. And I realized, you know, I'm never going to get out from under this whole, you know, being a clerk. So I've got to do something else. And I got quite interested in um, having been in the commercial department in all of the transactions. And I just thought, you know, going into banking would be a good idea. So I left um, to go to APSA Bank, which is one of our big banks. Um, I was there in their group legal department, so I did a whole lot of general things, but also um, a whole lot of very interesting things in their sort of treasury department, swaps, is, does, that sort of thing. I, I was, um, it was the first time that I got to know any of those sorts of things. Um, but while I was there, I realized that the culture really didn't fit me. I'd gone back into a very Afrikaans culture um, and I was headhunted. So I went to Investec Bank, which is an investment bank. And um, that was a fantastic, fantastic place. Um, a very harsh environment, if you leave it, but a wonderful, wonderful place where I learned uh, structured finance, which is a lot of tax-based transactions. I, I hadn't done any tax, but I, I learned a great deal. And um, I went on to do my HDIP tax um, whilst I was pregnant with my son. Um, so I think he knows a lot of tax that he doesn't realize. Um, <laughs> and uh, I stayed at, at, at Investec for, 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 it was 10 years all in all, but I left again, pivoted when my son was born because I was told that um, I could work flexible hours, etc. with this young group of um, upstarts who had left Investec to start their own thing. Um, and of course, it didn't quite pan out that way. So I was there for a year and I went back to Investec and then stayed for another five years. And then um, my husband, my, my ex-husband um, passed away and oh. I thought, no, you know what, I've got to go back to practice um, because I need to earn money and look after this child by myself. And Bowman said, no, please come back. You know, you've got a lot of great experience, etc. So I was on my way going back to, to Bowman Gilfillan, but um, whilst I was at Investec, I took part in an aviation finance transaction. We all met up in London. It was our national carrier buying their Airbuses. And the person from Standard Bank, the legal person from Standard Bank, actually heard that I was leaving Investec. And he said to me, please, won't you come to Standard Bank? We need someone with aviation law experience. And I said, no, you know, I want to go back to practice. And he said, are you mad? You know, <laughs> you're going to be working long hours and you've got your son. He's eight years old. And why would you want to do that? And I said, no, they're promising me I'll have clerks and associates. And he says, you know how it is. And I started thinking, oh, maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. So right. I, I landed up going to Standard Bank. And um, I thought I'd just be there for a, for a little while. Um, but it's been such a wonderful experience. Um, 
because it's such a large institution, you can do a whole lot of different things. So I started out in investment banking and I think I was there for five years. And then I was asked, my boss was leaving. He was going back into practice, going to Bowman-Gilfillan. He's never been in practice. He did his articles, but he, he didn't stay. So he went to Bowman's and they asked me if I wanted to take over his job or there was a job in retail banking. And there was no um, big pivoting um, thing that led me to do this. I just, I, I was so tired of doing the same thing. I said, I'll do the retail thing. And they said, are you mad? You know, it's litigation. You hate litigation. Um, it's consumer finance. It's consumer protection. You don't know anything about it. And I said, you know what? I want to do it. And it was a wonderful, wonderful idea. So I spent, it was very hard um, getting to know all of these things. I went from having six people report to me to having 60 people report to me. But it, it, it was a blast. And I spent another five years doing that. And then when our general counsel at the time left in 2017, um, they asked me to, to take over his position. So, and, and I've been there since 2017. There's a whole lot I would love to unpack there, Renee. Take me through, what, what are the key kind of takeaways from those periods that, that have remained with you? Law firm uh, and Vestatech, retail and and i can see you've got a bit of a spirit of i'm going to try something even though others are telling me i'm mad and even though i don't know anything about retail banking what what are, what are the key takeaways for you when you look back on those phases of your career that you attribute to each one of them so you know the thing is i never had i'm not one of those people that have a five-year plan if you look at it on the surface it just looks like i was quite lucky to be in the right place at the right time um, but I think it's more than that. I think it's it's about keeping your head down and working. That's the one yep. thing. And not having these plans, you know, like I want to be this, I want to be that. Um, but rather to focus on the, the job at hand um, yep. and to keep to what you know, in a sense, but never to let a challenge go by to learn something new. Um, so I stuck with law. I didn't like a lot of the lawyers go into business. Um, and I've had a few offers and I said to them, guys, uh -uh, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm a lawyer. That, that's what I do. And that's what I enjoy. So stick with what you know, but, but then test your boundaries by, you know, reaching yep. out to things that scare you because, yep. the, and if you have to ask me the most rewarding time I ever had was this retail banking episode. I mean, it, it was bedlam. Um, you know, I, I actually knew nothing about the products. Um, it was so large. I was astounded. Um, you know, the investment bank makes a lot of money, so they've got a big presence. But when you get to the group and you see how large it is and the actual bank at work, um, it's it's quite amazing. It, it, it opened my mind. And the big thing that, that I realized is that I... Um, I'm a lawyer, but I love people. I really love people. So this has been the, the greatest satisfaction for me, having all these people around, having millions of kids um, to, to be able to teach and to learn from them and having that energy around us. So I was quite surprised when we started working at home that I didn't just wither. We found ways to, to keep that flame alive. And is that something you found as you progress in your career, you got more experience, a few more years under your belt, the the importance of leadership, of having people that you're learning from, but are learning from you and you're able to guide. Certainly, I just, I feel like that is big, that becomes a bigger 
a bigger and bigger part of one's career and satisfaction as they as they progress. Certainly, in my um, uh, from my personal experience, and it sounds like the same for you and the energy you get and the mentoring you're able to do. Talk about that and how important that is for you. That is what I live for at the moment. You know, yeah. um, it's it's so gratifying to see these guys. And mostly, you know, it's about giving people opportunities because they'll they'll yeah. take it and run. Yeah. Um, when I joined the retail side, my predecessor had, had gone to head up compliance and she had taken all the senior guys with her, not in a bad way. It just happened. They, you know, they yep. didn't know this upstart from investment banking coming here to tell everybody what to do. Um, so I was left with a whole lot of juniors and Afterwards, they told me there was a lot of um, angst about, you know, whether I would bring my investment banking people across. And all I did is I sat down with each one of the guys who were the second in line. And with a lot of a lot of times you'll see this happening. They were actually the ones that were doing the work. Um, and they were the ones getting their hands dirty. So I had the right people there and I just had to convince them that, you know, they, they should stay, they should believe in me and I'm going to believe in them and, and we'll, we'll come up through the ranks. And actually, the, the one um, lady who was in litigation at the time, uh, she's taken over my job in retail um, and she's been running that um, when I moved on to, to, to be the, um, well, now they call me the chief legal officer. Um, so there's such a lot of, of work that you can put in in identifying these guys and just giving them a chance, um, you know. And and what's also been quite rewarding is I mentor our CE designates, and this got nothing to do with legal. So the chief executives in our Africa regions, we in eighteen countries in Africa, and um, they're trying to bring a whole lot of women through as well, um, because we've seen that the numbers are not that great. And I mentor some of them, and that's just as rewarding because now yeah. I'm not mentoring them from a legal point of view. I'm mentoring them from a standard bank group point of view. You know, what do you need to do? How do you manage things? How do you navigate challenges? And that's really been um, an awesome experience for me as well. And, and Renee, that's that's leadership. That's what leadership is about: to be able to mm-hmm. mentor, grow, um, impact, and influence. Um, uh, those around you um, to I talk about creating the white space so they can grow in there. I talk about believing in them more than they believe in themselves and then um, and creating those opportunities because that's for me, that's leadership. That's what that, that's what drives people if they people don't leave organizations, they leave their boss. <laughs> yeah um, and if um, if, if the team feels like the boss has got their back and their personal interests and their careers um, are a huge part of um, what is driving the boss, um, the the leader, that that is powerful. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's and that frankly that's all that's what leadership should be striving for everywhere in all every organisation because um, uh, that's how you create careers. That's how you get the best out of people, and that's how you get loyalty. Um, yeah. n- not in any derogatory way, but in mm. a way that people are committed to the cause and committed to you and the team in the organisation. Um, it is uh, it's a superpower, um, mm. and the early I think the earlier you can start developing that in your career, the, the more successful you are going to be, the more satisfying. 
a career you're going to have. Absolutely, and I can't agree with you more. Yeah. Tell me, um, so 2017, you take on the most senior legal officer position at the bank. What are the key priorities you're focused on? And then I'd like to compare it to the key priorities you're focused on now and how that's changed. So tell me when you when you took on the role, what were the key two or three priorities that you were focused uh, focused on? The first priority I, I had was unifying the legal team because we we have a model where the corporate and investment banking legal team is embedded with their clients. Yep. Um, and then we have a center of excellence, center function that looks after the rest of the bank. And then, of course, in the different African regions, we have um, both uh, com- embedded and non-embedded lawyers. It depends on how big the country is and whether they even have CIB lawyers, etc. But there was definitely a silo mentality, which is something yep. that, that we identified in 2017. We had gone, I was very privileged to go on a MIT course with, um, I was on the group um, executive committee and we all went to MIT for a week and we were looking to future ready our, our organization. Part of the problems that we identified was that there was a silo mentality, you know, yep. each one looking out for himself. So I wanted to to make sure that we draw the lawyers closer. And I was in the fortunate position that I'd been in um, investment banking and that I'd been in retail banking. So I knew both sides of it and I knew the lawyers and I knew the synergies. Yeah. So, you know, the, the investment banking lawyers thought they knew everything and they weren't even aware of the things that the guys were doing in retail so i said to them look you guys need to get closer together for one you are one legal team you're all lawyers you don't know each other's names so i set up a whole lot of events so that they could get to know each other and they were astounded to find out that you know the lawyers in the retail bank are innovating they're doing things that they're still looking at because you know, innovation begins in the consumer side, you know, because it's apps, etc. where the investment banking side, the big corporations, there's a different way of innovating. Um, Isn't that they interesting? Then, they yeah. then thought they had come up with the idea. You know how it is. I <laughs> love them with there. But um, so it was wonderful to see um, how everybody's eyes were, were opening to, you know, there being lawyers in other parts of the bank doing very interesting things that they weren't aware of. Um, payment system that, you know, they didn't know, you know, they just took for granted, but, you know, all of these things, the products, etc. So unifying them and having this culture of respecting each other and respecting what the other guy does was one of the, the, the very first things. And it was a big yep. priority yep. for me and getting that culture right. That changed over time because now we've got that right. And even where they remain embedded, I have taken the areas where we have an overlap and put like a virtual team together where I have lawyers from both sides. And in a strange way, the pandemic and going onto all these tools, Teams, Zoom, et cetera, has made it possible for us to be together in a room without a big deal of trouble, including, and this was the fantastic thing about it, the lawyers from the Africa regions as well, yep. you know, so we could have their input as well because they they have actually innovated to a great extent more and quicker than we have. Um, you know, they're closer to their clients. It's a very different setup in some of these countries. It's very small and you do what you have to do. So, you know, that, that's been great. And isn't that fascinating? It's, it's funny to be able to break down the silos and there's 
there's almost no organisation in the world, I think, that hasn't had a problem with how do we get rid of the silos and how do we tap into all of the innovation that's actually taking place in those silos? I mean, the example that you've given about, you know, the different African regions and what the teams in those regions have had to do to get things done um, and how you can potentially cross-fertilise those things into the... uh, I mean, it's all in the organisation. And that's, again, to me, that's another thing of leadership, but it's your job to work out, you know, how do you bring that together? How do you break down silos? How do you cross-fertilise, you know, within the legal department and then beyond across Mm -hmm. departments so that you're actually leveraging, you know, whether it's mini innovation centres or just improvements rather than sometimes we look externally when it's actually, when when a lot of it is internal and it's just a, just a question of breaking barriers down and creating forums for collaboration, you know, and no doubt the pandemic has helped a little bit on that. It's made it obviously easier for us uh, to connect. So how it's changed is, I guess, now focusing on, on technology, where before we saw technology as an innovation for our clients. Now we were using it to innovate in our daily lives. So with not a lot of money, you know, we don't get a lot of money in legal for um, digitization and IT budgets, etc. But we managed to get some money and we managed to use our internal IT guys to build. So we've built a litigation minder and we've built a matter management system and something called legal agent, which is a contracting tool. Um, And instead of, because they came to me and they said, oh, look, it's going to cost us so much. And, you know, then we can get this package. And I said, yes, but remember, then you've got to make sure that they can maintain it and that it's compatible with our internal IT systems, et cetera. There's a lot of hidden costs there. But if you give me some time, because it will take more time, we can do this ourselves. So we've done those three things. And the litigation minder was actually, because we we across so many countries, um, litigation is a nightmare to keep um, track of and for our insurance purposes. So I'm responsible for advising our insurers of all of these things. And a lot of times I was surprised by these things because we had Excel spreadsheets that people were being um, yeah. were, were doing manually. So now they have that tool and they can all input it. We get better data because we were always told legal data is dirty because <laughs> it's yeah. we, we weren't as... Um, technologically sound as we were supposed to be. So these things are making it much better for, for data purposes, etc. Um, and just, just helping us not to get into trouble. So we did that. The matter management is a workflow tool. Um, everybody's got access to that. And the, the, the contract um, tool was for more vanilla type transactions so that we can uh, you know, cut out the, the elbow grease of having lawyers sit and do the marketing agreements, the NDAs, that yeah. sort of thing. So that's been quite a focus, and I'm quite proud of, of what we've managed to do with not a lot of money. Um, it did take a long time, and there was a lot of tears and, and um, pains, but, um, yeah, we, we, we're getting there. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you look ahead, um, Renee, what, what, what do you see the biggest challenges for your legal department? I think you're responsible for 300 people. What are the biggest challenges in the future? And what you know, what keeps you up at night so far as those challenges are concerned? The things that that was the most wonderful things to come out of the 
uh, pandemic and sounds strange to say that, but they were. And it's this thing about bringing people together now on a scale that we couldn't do before because you had to fly in people all over the world. That's, and and the, the, the hybrid working, the remote working, it has its challenges because now we've lost a lot of people. Um, we've had a lot of our specialists being headhunted by um, law firms, by startups. Um, because Is that they right? Can work anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's very difficult to compete against sterling packages with the RAND being what it is. Um, and also, we, we, we're facing a challenge of a lot of the business guys wanting people back in the office, you know, and it's worked so well for the lawyers working from home. Um, the ones that are just drafting agreements, you know, doing things that you need, focus time. So we've got to balance that. And I've been very vocal around not forcing people to go back for the sake of going back because that's going to make us lose more people because it's just, you know, you can really work from anywhere now and it may change over time. But I just think, especially in, in, yeah. in the legal fraternity, it's it's been a game changer. So people want flexibility. People, um, you know, want to be able to, to, to work from different places. They want to, they, they want to have more time with their families. Um, it's changed people, you know, so that is something you have to be cognizant of. It's, it's funny. I don't think there's an organisation in the world that's not, including mine, not thinking about, not worried about, not trying to work out what that model is, what, what's happened to the world and how expectations have been completely reset um, and, uh, and how we all navigate that. I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm struggling with that. Um, you know, all the factors that you talk about, the requirement for flexibility, the now you're competing with a much broader group of competitors because of the ability to work remote. And you're right, it's very hard to be mandating time in the office if someone can do their job really well outside. And if, if the marketplace is saying, well, you can work anywhere you like if you join us, um, it's a tough one. Yeah, and to balance it with still having the interaction, which we sometimes need, you know, with the new joiners, um, just in general. Um, so we've said you only go to the office if you have an interactive session where you're having a strategy session or yep. a client get together or something like that. You don't go into the office if you're just going to sit there on your computer at your desk with your headphones on. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's no reason for us to be doing that. Yeah. Yep. Because you do need you, you. A lot of people have missed out on on that sort of. It's very difficult to train the guys, um, you know. And we've made do. Some of the guys have had all of them on um, uh, teams for the entire day, so that they all work together. They're talking, and they in places like Treasury or global markets where they used to work on the floor. The legal team did that, so you know everybody had their own way of trying to deal with it. Um, I set up. But I'd done that before. I had a, a coffee with Renee that was like every month I have like 20 lawyers or whatever, and then we have coffee and they can ask me anything and we can chat about whatever they like. Um, and I then did it online and then wonderfully I could include all of the lawyers, the African regions guys. So, you know, that's, that's really been great as well. And, and they, they really enjoy it and they talk much because it's a funny thing. I don't know if you've experienced this. Um, I've seen that, if you have a lot of lawyers in a room and you ask questions, nobody puts their hand up. Nobody wants to talk. 
Um, and I don't know if it's that thing about you only talk when you've been prepared, you know, like you prepared <laughs> yeah. your whole yep. defense or something. But if you're asking someone to just ad lib there, then they don't say a lot. Um, and this has been great because people start talking. So I get a few people, I like seed a few people there that I know, Dave. like me, that has, pro, you know, verbal diarrhea and <laughs> then starts flowing. And, you, you know, you get so much um, joy out of that and, and, you know, and finding out about people that are struggling as well. So that's been great. But we've got to continue that again and, and bring that in as well. So it's going to be a gradual thing. And we're all finding our feet, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about... Uh your relationships with your law firms, what are some of the pet hates and what would you like to see them doing more of? So stop doing and doing more of. I think, you know, we've, we've got quite a good working relationship set up because, you know, we've been around for 160 years, um, last week, the 15th of October. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> Happy 160-year anniversary there for Stanton Bank. <laughs> Thank you. We, we know our law firms and, and we have a way of working um, and we've got people that we, we've brought in from time to time to uh, work in the bank so that they right. get to know how we work and, you know, how the policies work and how to navigate things. Um, so... I like to have my my lawyers close to us and I like to for them to understand where we're coming from. We we quite hands on as a function. You can imagine with so many lawyers, we we actually yeah. do the work. We're not a post box and we have very strong views on you know how things should be done. Um, so I enjoy having a relationship where you know we give input as well. I mean, we're actually marking up the the work that they're doing and, and giving our views. And sometimes we have big debates about it, but, you know, it's it's a wonderful, it's a two-way street. So so that I enjoy. Um, the thing that I enjoy most, uh, least, is, you know, people make mistakes. You know, you get that from time to time. You know, we've had a very large transaction um, not too long ago and, you know, the wrong advice was given. I looked at it and I said, no, this isn't right. So went back to them and said, guys, okay, so, yep. you know, we don't believe this is right. And they're like, oh, okay, yes, no, 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 you're right. Um, you know, I'll speak to you later, you know, the other guy. And then we don't hear a word about it again. And everybody sort of just pretends it didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and then I get the bill and I'm like, mm -mm, I'm not paying for that. And, you know, I had to do my own opinion here. So come, let's just be honest. When mistakes happen, that's one, you know, it, it happens. Own it. And, and let's move on. But then, you know, like, don't don't try and pretend that it didn't happen because, you know, we're all in this together. So that's one of my pet things that that I peeves that I that I don't enjoy. That's why we're all there. And that's why we're working together. That's why we get paid money as well to to be able to. Because sometimes it's in it's it's also in the, you know, the knowing your product or your client or the bank or something that, that someone doesn't know. So I'm not saying that, you know, we much better or worse. It's it's just it happens. I released a podcast recently about the billable hour and how I thought it was a very poor currency on which to manage law firm relationships because the incentives weren't aligned. In-house teams were looking for solutions which were outcome-focused, which were faster, which were using technology innovative, whereas the billable hour essentially uh, motivated the opposite, motivated more time, motivated essentially driving rather than outcomes driving time. Have you got any thoughts on that, Renee? What's your view? 
So the interesting thing is when I took over the retail banking um, legal department, they were still doing timesheets. Um, and I got there and I'm like, okay, guys, it's, just talk me through that a little bit. I mean, most of us leave practice because of timesheets. Time um, yeah. And, and they said to me, they, they have to justify their cost to, to their clients. So there was reams and reams of paper, all these lawyers of what they do every day. And I said, no, 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 guys, we can't. I mean, do you know how much time you're spending just doing those timesheets? You know, you can put anything on there. And, you know, it's to me, it's the most ridiculous thing. It really is. I, I, I get it in a way. There yep. are pros and cons. But you justify your existence and your cost by the, the outcome. Good. And when your client's happy and you've done what you had to do. And let's give that a will. And people were very, very worried. People were very worried. And actually now we're going through a, a cost-cutting exercise. Oh, you go through it every year, every two years. And I said to them, and they said, you know, we should actually, if we had timesheets. And I said, no, um, it's not about that. I said, let's go and look through. And we see these are the things that we did. It doesn't matter how much time we spent on it. That's a given. Um, it matters about the outcome. What, what the Just make a, a summary about where you've saved money, where you've saved the day, where you've done something which you did, you know, um, those are the, the value adds that, that you need to show these people. Um, and that's all that you need. So I'm, I'm not a big proponent of, of, of timesheets. I, I, I think you're right. It's more about the outcome. Counts. And, yep. you know, that's the, the way of the world. I mean, I remember when, when I was doing my articles, I would get sent to do some guy's uh, dry cleaning, go and fetch it. And then I think, what am I going to put in my timesheet? And I think, oh, charity, because, I mean, what am I going to call it? So, I mean, that's the ridiculousness of the thing. It is. Because the industry, certainly the last 30 years or so, has learned to value something which I don't think is actually the right measure of value time. It's a very poor currency. If the, and it's a muscle. I keep talking about a muscle that the industry has to develop. It has to develop the muscle of being focused on outcomes and how to value those outcomes so that the true measure of value, the true currency, is not time, but it's outcomes. And it's about communication. So if you could sit down and you say, listen, and it's about costing, and unfortunately it's something that you have to do. So yeah. you cost what you think it's going to cost us to do this thing. Yeah. And, I mean, we understand. We in the deal. We know how much time you spend. So you give me a, a bill without timesheets and I look at it and I, I've got a good, we've, we've agreed on something. If, if it's changed, of course, I'm going to say fine. If I know that all of a sudden, instead of we said we'll do three drafts, we did 23. Yep. Obviously, of course. it's going to change. Yep. So, you know, that's the way to deal with it. Um, not by, and, and I think it is, it's a blunt instrument. And then it places everybody under such pressure because they don't want to write off fees because oh. it feels like money that they're giving oh. up, which oh. is an absolute fallacy. It's ridiculous. I know that's, I mean, how many conversations I have had where, where that's exactly right. I just lost money because I mm -hmm. had to write off fees. Um, anyway, I could go on about this topic, Renee, for hours, <laughs> but, but we won't. A couple of things I want to wrap, off, wrap up with. Um, I usually, you said something during the course of, you know, whether you were actually in the early days living your father's dream rather than your own, but clearly you've, you know, you've come into your own and you love what you do. It reminds me of a discussion I had only a few weeks ago with my youngest daughter, who's in her early 20s. Um, well, actually, I had with both. I've got two daughters. They're in their 20s, and I have a boy in the middle. And I, the discussion I had with them just a few weeks ago 
um, was this. It's really important that you live the life that you want to live, not the life that you think is expected of you by others, and particularly your parents. Um, and, and actually, because that's what we often do. It's, uh, we end up living the life that we think somebody expects of us. Um, and the pair that are, I think, obviously a real influence on that. And I don't know if your thoughts on that, but I, I just felt like, and I hadn't done it before, but I felt like it was important to, to give almost permission <laughs> to my, you know, the adult children to make sure they're working on living their own lives, working out what that is, not what someone else, particularly your parents, think the kind of life you should leave. Any thoughts around that, Renee? Absolutely. You know, it's an interesting thing because with my son, um, the 24-year-old, very early on, he said to me, because I said to him, why aren't you studying? Because he hated school. He hated school. He didn't want to study. He just got through. My nose was shot because I was the one with the, you know, studied very hard. And yep. He said to me one day, he was still young. He was in, in primary school. He said to me, mom, just remember one thing. I am not you. And this is not important to me. So I said to him, okay, and I thought he's right. But it, it was a constant battle. I was, was constantly so worried that I'm yeah. not pushing him because he was a mediocre student, you know, and we struggled to get him through school. Um, and then he couldn't go and study what I thought he wanted to study, but in retrospect, it's something what? I nudged him towards yeah. because my son's very materialistic and he just wants money. So I said to him, if you want to make a lot of money, become a chiropractor. Look at the chiropractor that we take you to after your rugby things. You know, they make a lot of money and he's like, that's a good idea. And then it, it didn't work out. He landed up in doing an IT degree, which is not really what he wanted to do. Um, but He's, he's never done anything that I expected of him. Yeah. And we had an interesting discussion the other day where, and I felt so bad because now he's doing IT and he's actually in a very interesting area. He is in cybersecurity. Yeah. They do forensics and, and I thought he would love it, but he actually doesn't enjoy it that much. And he, he, it's very far from our house. So he drives 120 kilometers every day. So he only gets paid for his petrol, not even wow. um, I said to him, look, you know, you're learning. So take that. It's yep. your school fees. You're paying now. Learn as much as you can, because this is something yep. that's highly in demand. So you're getting taught these things. It's, it's priceless. You know, you could have been an IT guy, like doing just general things and you'd struggle to find a job. You're always going to be in demand. So in a sense, now I'm pushing him because he's now found he's, he's not too mad about it, but it's also his first job and he's not getting paid well. Um, he's adapting to all of that. So I am still pushing him at the moment that I'm saying to him, yeah. you don't have to do this for the rest of your life, but yeah. I need you to stick with it yeah. until you've learned something because this is your opening to get into another place. And once you get there, you might have the leverage to then move around. He's going to go into business at some stage. It's in his blood, all his family's yeah. business people except his mother. Um, and, but that'll come. He's not going to be, I don't want him to start a company now. It's, it's not what he should be doing. So in a, in a sense, I am forcing him to do what I'm, I'm seeing for him, but it's because of experience. You know, yep. I know yep. that he now needs to, if it's just the discipline of sticking with something, learning and going through that, he's got to do that now. I mean, he's 24, yep. he's got a lot of time left. 
Yeah. And I say to him, you don't have to keep on doing this, but you've got to stick it out for a while until you've learned Not. some basic things. Um, and from there, I said, you could, you could do your own cybersecurity company. I don't know. There could be things that could spark you, but you're not going to do a startup now or whatever. And, you know, I, I don't want you to do that. I guess I can't stop him if he does. And what you're talking about there is what I think is really important those early years, recognising it's a journey and it's the learning and it's how much you can absorb in those early years. And I also talk about the more you absorb in the early years, the more chance you've got for that to become compounding growth because you've done it really early and you can layer on your experiences and that's what it's all about. And it's not about mm -hmm. finding something you're going to stick to for the next 20 or 30 years. Anyway, that's the challenge of parenting, <laughs> making sure your, ki your kids are living their own lives, but by the same token, yeah. um, they're able to benefit from the experience that you've had in, in that balance. Renee, two more questions. Um, advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self? That's my second last question for you. What's the advice? Don't buy an old sports car 30 years later. No, jokes, I'm having trouble with It's the first nonsensible thing that I've done in my life and it's keeping me up at night. Um, no, um, I would say don't sweat the small stuff. stuff. Yep. Take up your space and cut yourself a bit of slack. I love that. Because, you know, those types of things, you're so hard on yourself yeah. um, and it's all going to be okay. It yeah. will be okay. You stick with what, what you know. Keep your head down. Stick with what you know. but And take up that space and believe in yourself. Yeah. Um, it is the small stuff. We sometimes still sweat the small stuff now. And we think about it. It's funny. It feels big now. And the, and the <laughs> stuff that we think back when we we're 25, we just roll our eyes. And I can't believe I wasted time on that. Um, but uh, I think that's fantastic advice. Last question. The time between that you wake up and check your emails, less than 30 seconds or more than 30 seconds? Less than 30 seconds. Less than 30 seconds. <laughs> that, that's the most popular answer I've had. And with that, Renee, I want to thank, <laughs> thank you for joining me. It's been a marvellous discussion. I've really enjoyed it. And I'm sure the audience is going to join too. Thanks, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.